You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guests today are Tom and Jen Satterley. I've had them both on the program before independently, but today I've got them both as a couple. So Tom is a Delta Force veteran. He fought in the Battle at Mogadishu, which was the event portrayed in the movie Black Hawk Down. He's also just released a new book called All Secure. It is one of the most powerful military books I've read. He describes his upbringing the service uh, that he had the entire battle of Mogadishu, which was um, uh, just, it's amazing that, um, quite frankly, that he's alive and that others made it through there. Um, Several of his friends did not. And uh, for him to share that story and to share uh, often in detail um, the, the harrowing events that he survived and fought through, um, is a true testament to the man's character. He also is very transparent about his relationships, including his uh, relationship with his wife, uh, Jen. And uh, it's just incredibly inspiring to have someone be that willing to share uh, such intimate details about um, very difficult very difficult topics. Um, Jen is his wife, of course, and is heading up the All Secure Foundation, which is the nonprofit that they run together that helps veterans with PTSD and uh, just life post-service. So both of them are a true uh, inspiration and it's a real honor to have them on the program. Be sure to check out the other interviews that I did with them independently. Both of those were some of my most favorite calls. And uh, with that, let's dive into the call. We're going to talk about, in this call, how to lead in times of uncertainty. Tom's experience in the military and certainly dealing with the chaos of war uh, was something that I wanted to tap into, and we get into a lot of that, how to manage fear, how to navigate in uncertain times. Jen provides a very powerful uh, supplement to that as well with her experience in supporting Tom and also leading herself in the uh, in the nonprofit foundation that they run. So with that, why don't we dive into the call? Here I am with both Tom and Jen Satterley. All right, I'm here with Tom and Jen Satterley. Tom, Jen, thank you for joining me. I get the two for one today. Hey, how's it you going? You got the better end of the deal with her on. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> wash their hands. We're all sanitary for the call, ready to go. Yes, on. we were going to wear masks too, but we didn't think it was necessary. Yeah, did you see? But we don't know yet. We don't know. Uh, Joe Rogan on his podcast the other day was pretty funny. He had the full mask uh, and, you know, they still had enough room to get a, a, a butt in there, but um, <laughs> through a little pipe through the system. <laughs> right. um, well, again, thank you for carving out some time today. I wanted to talk to you guys um, because I feel like you are very well equipped to help a lot of people right now with dealing with craziness and how do you how do you lead in in times of uncertainty how do you uh, manage your own fear and things like that so um, and for the listeners this is also our first interview that I've uh, had with you post reading your book all secure so I have some questions about the book as well um, so I'm excited to, to get into it so first and foremost how are you guys doing everything good on on in your camp are you just bunkering up at home at the moment? We're trying yeah. not to lose our minds, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Coming up with creative ideas. Uh, we actually did our first Facebook Live thing about five minutes ago <laughs> just to kind of get the community working and sending in ideas on how to, uh, things they want to hear about, really. 
keep everybody talking instead of kind of isolating like I felt we've been doing. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think for us, we, we have the same disappointment that so many people have. All of our training, um, our PTS resiliency training that we were doing on bases across the country, we were going to the White House next week um, to do some training with their staffers. Um, all of it's been canceled and postponed. Um, all of our speaking engagements. We run a nonprofit, as you know, so um, nonprofits don't do too well in, in times of recession or depression. So, yeah, I mean, we are worried and, and you know, concerned like most Americans. Well, most people creative. in the world, I shouldn't say Americans, most people in the world. So, yeah, you run into a wall, you, you bounce off, you look for another direction, you keep running. So we've just changed directions. We're going to we're going to hit online sooner than we thought. So we'll just use online content and develop it quicker. Yeah, I, I think that's where a lot of people, it's it's such an interesting time to be in right now. Uh, Jen, as you mentioned, like just globally, we're all, we've, we're grounded to a halt. Um, and I, the entrepreneur in me is excited to see what creativity and innovation is going to blossom out of this because I know that people are going to figure things out. We'll, we'll figure something out. We have to, obviously, but um, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, a lot of it's, it's a good it's a good lesson and what you choose to look at will become your reality you can sit and stare at the news and, and get terrified and be miserable or you can get creative and start having fun this is where you see the creatives come out all the videos on facebook and social media all the creative world is coming out and showing fun things to do at home and then everyone else the warriors are out there like we need to do this and we need to watch that and get your guns and circle the wagons and i'm like <laughs> it's funny to watch the different uh, cultures if you will kind of behave in a different manner. Uh, it really is. So how do you, um, let's talk about that for a minute, how one goes about mentally dealing with massive, massive uncertainty. On top of uh, our health, we're also thinking about the economic impact. Um, what am I going to do with my kids for a prolonged time at home? Um, what if I don't have a job in a week or two or a month and I don't have any income? How does one go about navigating total uncertainty like that i'll just i'll, I'll say one thing first and i'll let jen jump in because she'll clean it all up better but okay, number no. one put your oxygen mask on first mm -hmm. you know and then take one step at a time because as a whole you stare at it, it's like oh financially in the market and oh it's the worst ever and then the virus is growing and we're running out of beds and we're running all the negative horrible things that can or might or will happen all at one time you can't handle it. You can't process it. You can't tackle it at one time. So pick something, you know, that's why we don't have one leader that does everything. We have multiple leaders that do things. You have to sit back and trust them, but put on your oxygen mask first. It is scary. I, I looked away from it for a while. Um, not look away from it, but like, you know, ah, come on, what, what, it's a cold, it's the flu. I'm, you know, I'm not running around licking ice cream at the grocery stores, taking videos of it, but I was guilty of, ah, you know, it won't be that bad. But, and then you look at it and you're like, oh, financially, oh, what about our foundation? Oh, how are we going to survive best? This? How are so many? And so I, it hit me that, you know, the stresses of work and then, oh, will I get sick? And what about my friends and family? So you just got to kind of put on your mask first and sit back and make sure you're healthy because it's going to affect everybody, whether you lie about it or not, it's going to affect you emotionally. Yes. I think that a good point, um, Tom and I have talked about this too. So most of his leadership time has been in a time of crisis and chaos. Um, when you're at war, it's not like, Hey, let's have a timeout so we can regroup and let's just tell the terrorist or, or whatever, you know, 
group we might be in combat with, hey, time out, we need to figure things out. You know, it's not like Tom ever had that um, ability to say, we all just need to step back for a minute. You know, it was reactionary. I mean, you talk about that all the time. We had a plan and the best laid plan only lasts as long as there's no other circumstance playing with you. So like you guys might've planned for a mission for a month and then it all goes to crap in two seconds. Yeah, exactly. You know? So I think just your point of bringing up to have different people in different roles that you guys had people that were fire support or heavy breachers and every, you know, people who were officers and people like yourself who were NCOs that had different um, expertise and were able to kind of work collectively to come up with solutions. And I think largely that's kind of what's happening globally right now is we've got people coming in from doctors who are saying, this is how to handle it. We have economics and we have, um, teachers, we have all different kinds of people coming into the scenario trying to help. But from a personal standpoint for us, it was, okay, let's compartmentalize just like he talked about in the military um, until we could kind of get our routine and get our structure at home. Because I think routine's important. I know, um, you know, as far as Tom and I being leader, we have ambassadors, we have volunteers, we have people that work with us at All Secure Foundation. It's how do you keep people motivated from working at home? How do you um, make sure that people are still getting what needs to be done done versus mm-hmm. Netflixing 18 hours a day or, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's fun for a bit. You know. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think that um, for us personally, it's, okay, what can we tackle? How do we tackle it? Okay, so the kids are going to be at home for a few weeks. Um, how are we going to structure that routine? And, you know, how do we handle thinking about our finances, thinking about our business? And so we've done it collectively. We haven't just sat in our pod, in our house, just the two of us. We've reached out. We've asked for help. Um, We've asked for advice. And I think that's important to be able to do. Um, Since we're on that subject, what is the routine that you've got with your kids, if you don't mind me asking? So they're going to get up. They're going to have breakfast. Just <laughs> go in the other room. We'll see you at the end of the day. <laughs> That's your way. Of- <laughs> you go do whatever see, you want. Compartmentalize. <laughs> I'll handle the kids. You can handle everything else. But um, I'm lucky that my kids are 13 and my son's 16th birthday is actually tomorrow. And they're really good. They're actually kids that thrive on routine. So they do really well with routine. And so, um, you know, get up, have breakfast, and then they have their desk set up for homeschool. And um, Desmet actually will be running the day normally. So Luke has to check in every hour. Check in. It's like they're going to another class on the computer. So, yeah, you're not going to be on Xbox all day, buddy. You're going to be checking in. You know, it's a five minute break every 55 minutes, maybe. The, the schools are great keeping them on schedules like that. And they're going to, they're working through it. Like everyone's working through this is new. Yeah. So everyone's sitting back blaming other people. This I mean, is so oh, rapid. you had a plan, pull it on out. What was your plan for this? I mean, I'm sure we planned for everything and those always last until you realize we didn't consider a half a million other things. But I mean, people are working through this like the schools and it'll be trying. It'll be, it'll be difficult, but to keep the kids on task, like Jen's saying, um, the schools have been great routine, with that, sure. um, with that routine. And I think it's just as important for adults to have that routine and the system in place, especially as it starts spreading out longer and longer. 
um, you know, if it's 30 days from now, at least you could see how um, not having a schedule, which, or a routine, which is what happens a lot when we see military transition is a, a point of failure is I lost some of my routine. I'm not doing what I used to do. And then we see a lot of depression, anxiety. Yeah. It goes from it's five o'clock somewhere to it's four o'clock somewhere to it's three o'clock somewhere <laughs> to, well, I'm, I'm still in bed. Why not start drinking and watching TV still? Wow. I mean, you got to get up, you got to move, you got to give yourself a routine or, or you're going to create a new routine, which is all that negative stuff you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it was, I got up at the same time today, made my coffee, you know, went about work just like I, I normally would. Um, you know, it's easy to fall into traps, but I think it's really important to stay focused, even to, to go above and beyond during this time. And that's yeah. what I'm encouraging my kids to do too. It's, we have to, I mean, yeah. we, to be honest, we work from home, so this isn't big, that's a big a kick to us as it is to some who go to work every day and, and need that. Right. So I'm, I'm over that hump of being stuck at home and, oh, you know, like, ah, right. So, you know, and I, we saw something funny. She showed me a video. It's like, okay, so um, let me ask you a question. You're stuck at home, you're quarantined, you can't go anywhere. So you either A, you know, you're stuck at home with your spouse at home or B, it was B, 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 right? They didn't hear what B was. Right. Uh, it's hilarious, but it, those jokes are coming out and those jokes, jokes are based on reality, right? All yep. jokes are kind of based on some reality. So we've gone out now, we make rules. We're going to walk twice a day. We're going to get out and walk twice a day. We're building a gym in the basement. You know, the thing we've talked about for years, we're going to actually do it now because <laughs> we can't go to the gym where we bought the membership. So that excuse is gone. So, right. um, getting and out doing putting things. the kids yep. tasking with those things too. Like, okay, you're going to help us build the home gym, and, yep. you know, giving them stuff to do so that, you know, cause they could easily fall in the trap of sitting in front of the computer all day doing schoolwork. Um, and then jumping on Xbox or something else, but no, we're still going to push the outside time and, and helping time and, um, everything sure. else is, everything else is an excuse, right? If you, if you lay around and do nothing or you lay around, it's an excuse. I, I, I'm guilty of it. I've done it. It's, those are excuses that we all make for each other and we'll argue those points, won't we? We'll argue why we're doing what we're doing, even though we know it's wrong mm-hmm. or we know it's not the right thing to be doing or the best thing. And we'll argue those points to the end just so we're not wrong but you know if in all honesty if we really break it down there's so much we could be doing no matter what is in our way or what we think is in our way you can get past it and do it and do something better yeah 100 percent. i think a lot of kids are facing that same leveling up um that you were talking about with your kids i think a lot of parents are are realizing that it's going to take a team to get this done and that they can't um just you know have have their kids rely on them as much as perhaps they did before. I know with my kids, I had a very clear talk with them that we need to, that, that, that it's time to grow up a little bit and Hey, this is, this is reality. Um, they're old enough to where they can kind of take that on and be even more self-sufficient. But I'm like, you know, they're squabbling and they're doing their, their brother sister thing. And uh, I've had to really draw the line and say, we can't go there. And it, like, that's, we don't have the luxury of that anymore. We got to really look outside ourselves and, and contribute more to the team. And so far, so good, knock on wood. I mean, we're doing okay, but uh, they're still, you know, brothers and sisters. But um, I do think a lot of kids are, are this is a good opportunity for them to, to level up and take on some more responsibility. Um, it sounded like you were describing the Senate. 
Yeah. Back and forth. You know, oh God. It's so, <laughs> you know, I don't mean to bring that up as a point of you know, yeah. fun, but. Well, uh, to me, that might be the biggest uh, silver lining in this whole thing. That was the first post that I made over a week ago. I'm like, hey, silver lining to this whole coronavirus thing. We're, we're going to put it aside our silly differences and actually give a shit about each other again. Hopefully. I mean, I, I think right. we're citizens, but you know, if Congress can actually make that happen, we'll see. Um, seems like they're heading in that direction anyway, but um, man, that would be, you know, it only took a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it takes. That's I've read that somewhere, but yeah, you know, they, they need to realize we all need to realize, but especially them as leaders and they're giving us our examples, right? No matter what they say, we're watching them, right? What videos are going to pop up? You know, two people talking about how we came to a, a, an idea and a fix for all this or people screaming at each other over why they hate each other about not passing a bill because guess what? At the end of the year, we're going to vote. Maybe, you know, we're going to vote soon. And everybody knows that. So if, if those leaders could put their personal aspirations aside and do their job as leaders and lead and show us the way and admit that they're going to screw up along the way, but they're going to do their very best and quit fighting over, I don't know what they're fighting over. If the economy mm-hmm. needs money, who knows what they're trying to slip in and why they're blocking it. I mean, we know how bills and laws work, but not in times like this. Right. And I'm not saying what they're doing is wrong or right. I don't know. I'm not up there. I'm smart enough to realize I'm not up there with all the information. I'm down here. I'm the guy in the back of that Ranger file that doesn't have a map, doesn't know where I'm going. I'm getting pissed off because I don't know how far, much farther we have to go. One more hill. Okay. Two more hills later. I'm like, hey, how much farther? One more hill. If I don't know what's going on, I'm going to start making up my own stuff in my head and freak out on whoever's <laughs> leading this thing. Yep. And then everyone else along the line that wants to know what's going on is going to do the same thing with me. Yep. A hundred percent. I think what, what really needs to happen is just the change of tone. Um, continue to disagree with each other, continue to debate, continue to argue and, and wrestle for the best possible solution that's authentic to, to you. But can we please, for the love of God, have some level of maturity when we, when they have dialogue, it's so ridiculous to watch them. Um, and at, you know, I think on some degree they are a reflection of us too. So maybe this is a good opportunity as citizens for us to wake up a little bit and give a shit a little bit more about who our leaders are and not just think it doesn't matter because we are. Exactly. Because now (laughs) are the times when leaders stand out. It's easy to be a leader when there's nothing going on. Yeah. Right. Sit back, move some things around, whatever, make some money for yourself, make some money for your friends. We're not stupid. I hope most people aren't that stupid that there's no personal gain in some of this as well. Um, but remember that they're public servants. We pay them with our money. They're not giving us our money back. They're managing the money we gave them. And oh, by the way, be leaders. Be leaders. Put your personal differences aside. Put your political aspirations and differences aside because this is one country. This is one world. And we're all in it together, no matter how much we hate each other or what we think we hate about each other. Um, solutions are reached quicker when we work together versus argue the whole time. Do you, uh, have you taken that and applied that with people literally that are pointing guns at you? Like, how do you, how do you, I'm just extrapolating that out a little bit because you talked about one world. Um, do you, do you connect at all? Some of the, some of the stuff in your book uh, was so moving because you really did talk about looking at the world through your enemy's eyes and, and having some level of empathy with, their plight. Um, not that, not that all of it needs to be written off, of course. Um, but, uh, that was, that was incredibly moving to, to experience some of that or to read some of that. 
Um, does that factor in at all when you think of the, the global nature of this whole thing? Yeah, for sure. You know, when I had a job to do back in the day when I was killing people or hunting down people, there's violence that's needed there. You know, there's violence needed at times. It's not random violence anytime you want. It's not, you should always be violent. It's when you have to be violent, you're violent. And then if not, you do it a different way. You always back off, you know. Combat is a, an extension of politics. It's an arm of it, right? You, you want you negotiate, you negotiate. You can't come to agreement. Okay, I'm going to reach out and smack you. I'm going to hurt you a little bit. I'm going to pull back and stop the violence and then try to figure it out again. You can't do both at one time. That's how people get killed, right? Politics and killing. No, no, no. Because the enemy is not doing that, right? They're just doing their thing, especially nowadays with the terrorism. You know, they just have that religious goal. No matter what it is, they don't like you, so it doesn't really matter. But there's times when you have to back up and realize that, you know, not all Russians are bad, right? It's great to get a country together. You know, not all Afghans are bad. Not all Iraqis are bad, you know? Um, you break it down to ISIS. Okay, now, now we're getting down to something that is bad, but you also have to be intelligent enough to be empathetic enough to understand that they were raised from birth that way and there's no other belief system that they have, so they think that you're wrong. So there's just differences that unless we sit down and educate and listen to each other and understand and come to an agreement of, okay, you want to cut heads off, cut heads off in your own community, I guess, which still is wrong. Right. But don't bring it into our house. We're going to stop that. But, you know, that's that's a bit extreme on the pendulum. However, people seem to operate on this side or this side. You know, I'm either screaming over here or I'm screaming over here while most of us operate right down here in the middle. Mm -hmm. Common sense world. And um, hopefully we can understand that the things that I believe in, I was taught the things she believes in. She was taught, you know, I could do five people that believe in five different things and they could have grown up generally in the same different areas. Now imagine separating that around the world, right? Different beliefs, different cultures, different systems. We're at different levels in our evolution and in our, in our mental processes. So we're going to have differences, but it doesn't mean we have to always be violent and disagree and fight. You know, we can stop and listen and relent and give in at times too. both sides have to do it. But that would take a tremendous amount of maturity. I would think, <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe that's what we need to work on is the maturity level of everybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, one thing that strikes me too, that it's, it's helpful, um, reading your book and better understanding the, your experience is to put things into perspective. It's very easy for us, I think right now to, to feel like the sky's falling and, and all that. And obviously there are very, very, very significant things happening in the world that we need to be concerned about. On the other hand, nobody's shooting at me. Uh, my, my buddies are not being killed in front of me. Like th there's a lot that we have to be grateful for. We have, you know, most of us are still um, healthy. We have, we've got our kids. There's, there's lots there, but I wanted to, um, ask you this question because for those that are, um, that don't know you very well, Tom was in the battle at Mogadishu, which was, uh, the event that the movie Black Hawk Down was portrayed after. And the, something really hit me when I was reading your book where, every advantage that you had going into that battle was flipped on its head. Um, you were, it was like the perfect storm. You, you were focused on small, mobile, very quick moving teams. And now all of a sudden with the Black Hawk that crashed, now everything got slowed down. So speed was taken away from you. You normally would attack at night under surprise. And now the enemy knew exactly where you were going 
uh, with, with plenty of time to plan for it. And it was in the middle of the daytime. Uh, you had very small provisions so that you could be mobile and light. And now all of a sudden you have an extrapolated all long battle and needing a lot of, uh, supplies. What goes through your mind when every advantage is now a disadvantage when the plan is 100% the exact opposite of what you intended it to be? How do you mentally navigate that, especially when you're literally dealing with life and death all around you? I think the first thing that goes through your mind is, oh shit. Um, we're in that oh shit moment right now um, in the world. So we're all reeling from what is this? Wow, I, I didn't plan for this. I had no idea my vacation's canceled. So whatever it is that's affecting you um, is driving your emotions right now. Um, in combat, I, I separated my emotions. I had to. Um, the only emotion I had was hatred, hate and anger. You know, that got me through. You know, I can't kill somebody I have empathy towards or, or I like or I even understand. So you demonize them and hate them. So when all that goes to, to hell and we're no longer winning as America, right? We're number one. We're the best in the world. That's, that's what every country tells themselves. Um, then you have to kind of self-assess and realize that if you don't have those plans in place, right, those standard operating procedures and you haven't planned ahead, then you're going to reel for a while. Right. We had SOPs in place, but not as many as we do now back then. So it was a learning lesson. And sometimes you get knocked down, you know, you lose. And it's horrible to think that. But then what you do after is what's really important. What we do after this happens will be really important because this has happened. We're not stopping it. All right. I'm sorry. I'm no expert on that, but it doesn't seem to be like we're stopping it. And we got to look back at all the different plagues and, and, and things that we've had through through history. This isn't our first time. It won't be our last. And we'll probably see this again next year like we do the flu. It'll mutate. We'll get a shot for it. People still get sick. Some people will still die. Um, and I'm not diminishing anything about what's happening now. I don't want to throw statistics out because I always try to skew the numbers about, well, 5,000 people a day die from the flu. And sure, we don't have enough information on what's what's happening now. But, you know, after that, oh, shit, and you kind of reel back, you have to remove your emotions. You know, we had to calm down and then just make a plan on the fly, sticking by your, your people. I mean, we were pretty tight that night, you know, as friends and, uh, and battle buddies and defenders together. And we, we relied on each other. We didn't check on each other. We didn't bicker. We just did our jobs, put our noses down and did our jobs to survive, which is kind of what we all need to do now. Put our noses in, you know, down and, find out how we can help, what we can do and pitch in and support our leaders. All these great ideas coming in, even in some way, we can do this, we can do that. What about this and this and that? Certain people have certain information and they're making decisions based off of that information. If that information is factual, you know, not skewed to lean somebody in a certain direction or whatever, if you give them factual information and allow those members in that group to make the decision based off the facts, we'll come out with the best possible solution. If that doesn't work, more facts, we keep going. When people start skewing it to alter it, to change it, to benefit themselves or a certain group or a party or, or, or a different amount of people, then we're making decisions based off of skewed information. So the best thing we can do is, is be factual, try to remain unemotional, at least at our leaders level, the ones making the decisions. Plenty of time for emotions, not at work, right? There's no crying in baseball, 
right? So when you're at work, remove the emotions because we all make poor decisions based on our emotions. Just ask Jen. She'll tell you how many bad decisions I make based on emotion. I was just going to ask you, Jen, as a woman, how do you respond to that, um, putting your emotions aside? I think um, we are human animals, and human animals um, need connection. And a lot of connection comes through emotion. So um, it's very difficult to uh, separate emotions from who we are um, as humans. But I do understand the need for it, especially in a combat situation, especially in the military. Um, all of the work and in, in the studying and the research that I've done working in special operations and, and now with the foundation is it's very difficult to be able to have a switch that flips off and on, off and on for emotional connection. So for Tom, it was just easier um, to keep the switch flipped off, to be unemotional and to try to only think rationally. Um, when he came home, it wasn't easy to flip that switch back on and off. And then biologically, things start to happen and shift anyways. So um, he has 25 years of training of trying to separate emotion from decision-making. Um, I came from the creative arts, so everything was very emotional for me. And So this uh, is a good um, melting pot of information. <laughs> right really, from one side balls. of the spectrum to the other, right here, is two different sides. And, and I guess by what I mean by remove your emotions at work is to... You know, we're seeing a lot of people arguing. I just watched a uh, Florida city manager yelling at their mayor, maybe um, back and forth about you're turning people's power off when we could have done something or screaming at each other, trying to vote on things that we need done. And then they canceled the meeting and walked out arguing. Because the emotions, emotions had gotten needed. so high yeah. that they had to shut it down. Right. You can't remove your emotions because this person over here is emotional about turning people's power off and taking care of people. This person over here is emotional about something else. and. Um, I guess personal emotions is a good thing to say to remove versus, um, you know, instead of screaming heatedly, we still have a time limit. We need to get things done. So we need to keep it calm and emotionless, meaning level heads kind of will rule, rule the day. But it is hard to turn them off and turn them on. That's for sure. You know, going to war, you can turn it off and leave it off. And uh, after a while, it stays off. So you don't have to worry about it. But when we work in these jobs, and we, we need to realize that, um, like the people like me, when I joined the military, I joined the military for college money. I'm going to get in and get out. 25 years later, I'm out, but I found myself in combat zones around the world. Doctors, nurses, truck drivers, you know, we're driving. You know, you, nobody loves us until now. Everybody has a job at some point. Doctors and nurses, we're overworked, and we need to appreciate our doctors and nurses. Now's your time to stand up. I get it. You're always saving lives, and this is, this is your battle. Veterans have their battle. You know, and veterans do the same thing when they come home. They say, uh, what about me? I did all this. Great, you did your job. Doctors, you guys are pitching in. And it's hard right now. Appreciate you. Yep, everybody support them. You're doing your job. Chuck drivers, the same thing. Yep, yeah, we have always appreciated you. But now, we really appreciate you more because everybody's buying everything up at one time. Mm -hmm. People always need to stand up when it's time to do their job in a time of crisis. And that's when their leadership needs to stand up and show them how to behave how to get it done, how to drive on, and not abandon your post, if you will, and run home to your family and quit your job if your job is to help other people. Mm -hmm. um, Tom, you're one of the most well-respected uh, special force 
operators out there. And I, I see the, the love that you get from your peers. Um, I, one of the things that's so powerful about you is that you reveal yourself and you are, are very open and transparent with your own vulnerabilities, which I think just adds even so much more credibility to what you've been able to achieve so far. And um, so I wanted to ask you, do you ever doubt yourself? Every day. <laughs> the second you were telling me you're the most revered guy, I'm like, who, who thinks that? <laughs> I, I mean, from the day, from the day I probably did anything worthwhile, I probably doubted how well I was doing it. I know a lot of my friends live that way. Um, a lot of them. I mean, I think it's in my book. If that, I think that I stated in the book about sitting around talking to these crazy leaders. One of them, um, you know, Scotty Miller, is in charge of the war and the war effort that's going on right now. Um, he's changing the way we do business. And we're sitting around talking about, oh, I thought you were the bad guy. You were a tough guy. You're a tough guy. You know, we always doubted ourselves as being better than anybody around us, which, you know, one, made us better because we were always working to be better. But two, it destroyed it, you know, at least me, um, on who I was as a person because I just, I shed everything else so I could be good at this. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've doubted myself from day one. I think most, that's a good, that's my guess. Most good leaders, most people doubt themselves because they want to feel respected. They want to feel like they're contributing. They want to feel like they're doing the right thing and they want to feel liked and connected. And the second, you know, you get poked fun at or made fun of or told that you're wrong, people get defensive and it's hard to take that jokingly. I know I do uh, a lot. And she's like, I'm just kidding. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I didn't like that. But it's tough to uh, to think that what you're doing is the right thing and the right exact way. And, and if you're that person that thinks and says that everything I do is the best, nobody should believe that. I mean, who's, we all fail. We all struggle. And it's hard to do certain jobs. The higher you go, the more difficult it is to do that job. So everyone's sitting around pointing fingers and yeah, the easiest job is probably second in command of anything because you can, I would have done it differently. I would, you know, it's easy to let the leader make those tough decisions while you sit back and, and I would have done it differently or it's, you know, driving the train from the back seat is, is always the easiest job. Hmm. But when you're the one responsible and you're starting to look down at the things you should be looking at, it's harder to make those decisions. So you have to be a good follower before you can even be a good leader. Hmm. Um, one of the things that you talked about in the book was the, um, your teammates and that you guys would come together and form a plan for the day or for the week or what have you, and how you would always look for, uh, I'm sort of paraphrasing. So if I get this wrong, tell me, but you would always sort of look for, tell me what you can't do. Like, I want to know your level of honesty so that I can trust that when you say yes, it's a yes, because you're also telling me no. Um, do you have any advice on leaders and how other leaders can be working with other types of leaders? You, you mentioned a second ago about it being, um, you know, authentic and truthful with, with your leadership. Yeah. I have a lot of problems with this at home too. Um, when Jen and I talk a lot, she'll say, Oh yeah, she'll answer a question. Um, and this helped me with this. She'll, I'll ask her a question. She'll answer it. And I'll kind of know that she really, that's her opinion, not versus the factual answer. And it's not just, this is like, help me with that. And, and I'll be like, is that your factual answer? Is that what you think? No, no, that's it. 
And sometimes I'll look yeah, into it and go, like, no, that's not true at all. But that's what you thought was true, right? So the research part of it. And so we go back and forth, and I do this a lot. With I everybody. live in gray. He lives in black and white. Jen, so I, wait, the, way, the way you answer that is you say, it's a fact that I feel this way. Yes. <laughs> right. So it, that's where I talk about those factual information so those leaders can make the decisions based on facts. When you skew those off of opinion, um, or, or you know you didn't do research, but you don't want to sound stupid, or you don't want to sound like you didn't do enough of your job, or everybody likes to sound intelligent, but you have to be smart enough to know when you don't know. That's the hardest part is we don't know what we don't know. I'm struggling and working hard in my life to understand that there's so much I don't know that I doubt myself so much. Well, there might be something else I didn't know. I there might be something else I didn't know. So there's two thoughts on that is, Leaders need to make decisions at some point. They need to cut off everything and make decisions. And followers that are helping those leaders need to understand that here's my idea, here's my idea, here's my idea. But at some point when that leader smacks the table and says, okay, here's what we're going with, time to get behind that leader and get that thing done. Whether it goes with your plan or your buddy's plan or the leader's plan, whatever it is, when we smack the table, time to execute. And that leader needs to know that he can, needs to stop taking those ideas at a certain time and execute something as well. So, he needs to trust that he can get those facts based on not a political thing or not a personal thing or anything other than the facts based on his team or her team and the people that gave them that information. So that trust needs to flow down to everybody you bring in to work underneath you. Mm. Jen, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really interesting because um, Tom has taught me a lot about leadership and one of the things that I started implementing was sort of this um, two things, downtime. Um, so if I'm emotional about something um, in any capacity, especially if I'm upset or angry, is to um, let that emotional state settle for a little bit before making any decisions, before calling someone, before sending off an email, um, before trying to like resolve that situation in a state where my mind's not clear we're doing this or this is happening now or that person's gone or whatever it is. If you're breaking your keyboard, trying to answer that email, you probably not, <laughs> don't want to hit same. All right. <laughs> and, and I think we're in such um, a society of um, if I send an email or text, then somebody better respond within the next four minutes or it's like, why aren't you responding? And did you get my email? It's like Tom, what's one of the things that I've worked with on him is the phone and the email are there for your convenience, not for the sender's convenience. So, um, if we're in the middle of a family dinner and somebody's, you know, Hey, I've got an issue. Can you, you know, can we get on the phone? Well, you know, yes, this is part of our mission. It's what we do is we help others, but there's a time and place for it. So setting those boundaries, but also letting, uh, so the big thing is letting the emotional place settle before you're responsive. And I think that's what you meant by saying, keeping emotions out of it, because I know I've said things in anger in the workplace too, or just being upset or having my feelings hurt. Yeah. Emotions, not feelings because yeah. we all need to feel for others. For sure. Empathy because I shut out all that before I shut out. When I said no emotion, I shut out empathy. I guess now what I mean is shut out your emotions, but have feelings and empathy towards yeah, others. So that you're having, you're really coming from a place of clarity when you make decisions versus that emotional response. And maybe your response is exactly the same as it was <laughs> in that moment of anger hey, we need to let this person go instead of firing in a place of anger. It's maybe 24 hours from later. It's 
okay, well, we've had time to think about it and talk about it. And what really is the best plan of action for him or her and for us and coming up with real clear solutions. So that has definitely been a piece from him is, is helping to let the emotions settle before reaction. I think that's. That becomes a- habit to people. Some people can't fire people unless they're mad. Yeah. Right. They can't work it up. They can't have an argument or a conversation unless they're angry because they don't have the, the, the courage to do it. So their courage is anger. Right. I, I speak, I can say that because that was me. Um, I, I used to not be able to do certain things unless I was either mad or, or happy or this or that. And I realized, okay, well, I can have a conversation with somebody about how poorly they're doing and it's going to be horrible, but not for me, for them. And I can also take a conversation about how badly I was doing, take it as criticism and, and take it and work on it, you know, and get better. If we remove our emotions, because those things hurt. Mm-hmm. Um. I, and I literally had a second point, and I was like, I literally forgot what my second point was. I thought she forgot. Now, anyways, like, so I was helping. Point her. one is, and point two, I'm like sitting here thinking, well, don't do crack. <laughs> I haven't done crack. It's only two o'clock. Give me till five. Yeah. I did have a second point. Maybe it'll come back. Two o'clock something. Maybe not. It'll it'll come back. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a, a more. Um, a little bit of a heavier question, just given, um, given the reality right now, a lot of people, I think a lot of the fear is coming from the idea of death and uh, either for themselves or their loved ones. Um, There was something in your book that I wanted to just read really quickly and quick shout out to uh, Steve Jackson, who helped write you write the book because it's beautifully written. Um, but it says, I pulled out my knife and set it next to me. I was thankful that I'd written to my parents just a few hours earlier, encouraged them to live their lives fully and let them know that I had chosen this life. And if it became necessary, this death again, I gave, I gave into the moment and had no other choice. This was my future playing out right now in front of me. And I had no idea how long it would be with the dawn starting to turn the Eastern sky, lighter shade of black. I made my peace and waited for whatever was about to happen. How, how have you made peace with death? I'll tell you, that was a momentary thing. Um, that's, uh, that's emotional for me to go to, to that space. I'm not afraid of dying back then. It was something I said, it was something I gave into then and I meant it fully. And then for a long, long time up until recently, I, uh, I didn't care anyway. Uh, we're all going to die, blah, blah, blah. I'm a warrior. Uh, I'm going to go to Bahala, blah, blah, blah. But those are what we tell ourselves because we really don't want to. And I, and I broke it down and I thought, I'm not really afraid of dying. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not afraid of dying because I'll, I'll be the guy that doesn't know about it. All right. What I'm afraid of is what I think of while I'm alive that will happen while I'm, when I'm dead. And now it is okay. What, what's what's Jen going to do? What's what's this going to be like? Not not that she's falling her face, but how will she feel? Her emotions and feelings about whatever happened to me. You know, um, the kids. Uh, my parents are both gone now. Me, my brother and sister. And so I've had a not a change of heart, but a change of thought process on that. And just you know, last night she fell asleep. We're on the couch watching our tenth Netflix show. Maybe I don't know. Uh, and. I'm watching the news and their statistics and I'm just kind of drifting off thinking as she fell asleep on my lap that I started getting nervous. You know, I had a headache. I was dehydrated from the day. 
had a headache, you know, and, and then my back was aching because we've been walking more. And I don't typically do as much walking because of my, my surgeries. So I was a little sore and I started thinking, am I sick? They said headache, stiffness, flu, I'm like flu-like symptoms. And I started getting nervous. I, so you get that, uh, that anxiety starts to build up. And then I started thinking, I wonder what a lot of other people are thinking about right now. So the sick ones, the ones who are sick, those who just have a cold and it's not that. And I started considering the high level of anxiety throughout the planet right now. And I'm usually pretty good at stuff like that. And it started to make me nervous and fearful. And I've been doing that a lot lately and telling her about it. Like, well, I just got driving home. I just had this feeling of, of, wow, I'm terrified of dying all of a sudden because I'm getting older. You know, in 10 years, you'll be 63. I'm like, oh, God, what? You know, and then 73, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dying. And, and I get terrified of it. And it's, it's like, wow, why? And it's not because of death, but it's because of what we leave behind and, 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 and missing things, if you will, you know, missing the happiness and the joy. So it's, uh, I think it's scary for most people just because what do we really, really, truly know? is next, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in a lot of different things. And it's like, but unless it's hit me in the face and I have a video on it, I don't really know what's next. Right. That's faith. And that, that means a lot, but it terrifies me that I don't have that. I'm a black and white kind of answer guy. Right. I don't have that black and white answer. What's, what's next. So it's a little of the unknown that people are always nervous about, but I've, I've, uh, that accepting death is one of those things that kind of a, motor, uh, a morale cry for me mentally in 93. And it continued on for another, you know, 20 some years through Iraq and other places around the world to keep me doing my job. But now instead of focusing on, I'm not afraid to die, this didn't break everything on the way out. Now I'm, uh, you know, focusing on how to stay alive and make things better. I mean, I used to have jokes about if my parachute doesn't open, what, what are you, you going to do? We used to joke about it. Well, I'm going to look for something expensive and try to flow over and crash into it, you know, make a statement on the way out. It's like, wow, what goes through people's heads when the bravado of your job tries to tell you that I'm not, I'm not afraid to die. I'm a warrior, right? So it's kind of a, a different thought process for me to kind of look at it like, wow, I don't want to leave this planet just yet because there's so much good in it. And, so much happiness that I have now versus uh, it's better than getting shot at every day. Right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Jenna, how about you? You know, for me, it's interesting because he has been having these moments of almost awakening little pops of um, emotions coming back and some of the things that were shut off for so long coming back. And um, we've been having this discussion for a while and when he said, I don't know um, why it's bothering so, me so much about dying. Like I've never, I always kind of shrugged it off. I'm like, because you want to live, mm. you know, you've got something to live for. Um, and so of course you want to be here for that mission. Uh, for me personally, I'm a pretty spiritual person. And um, I even had talks with both of my kids, you know, hey, if something happens to me, kind of talks. Mm. And what I hope for them for their future and what, you know, my dreams and aspirations are for them. Um, you know, also having the uncomfortable moment of if I'm gone, you know, I believe that we are all energy. I believe my energy will still be here. You know, I, I hope that you continue to talk to me and look for me and, 
you know, so we've, we've had those talks and actually that makes me feel a little better is that I've, I've had those kind of talks with my kids. And, um, in fact, one of the things that I've been doing is writing a letter to each of them. Um, and, and having that. So if something does happen to me when I had my surgery, um, what Tom, I told him, I said, there's notes for everybody. You know, I, I know it sounds morbid, but it helped me in the process of, of if I don't make it through this or, you know, if this time comes, what do I want to tell the people I love that I'm not here anymore for what, what, you know, what do I want to say? And so in the process of writing that, I told one of my best friends, I said, you know, kind of wish I had my funeral while I was alive because it'd be really cool to see everybody that I've loved through my life, like (laughs) gathering together. And Mm -hmm. I told Tom, I said, I don't want a funeral. I don't want a memorial service. I want a happy hour with a band (laughs) and uh, just cremate me. And, you know, here's the different places I want to be spread, but have a party for me. I don't, you know. This responsibility, really, it's, it's, it's our responsibility while we're alive yeah to make the plans of what happens to you when you're not and avoidance I, avoidance is never an answer right responsibility and maturity okay. of uh doing that hard hard task of having that talk with your children your brothers your sisters your kids you know about when i die not not when you're old no like you if i'm gone out, tomorrow you walk out the door and get hit by a car tomorrow we don't know we don't think we will it would never leave our homes right Nobody cares about cancer as much as a cancer victim. Nobody cares about the coronavirus as much as someone who's caught it. You know, it's, it's like there's still people in the world with this going on that don't really believe it or they believe it, but it's not, not me, not me, that not me attitude, which is causing some issues as well. But we have to be responsible enough because your children are going to want to listen to you. I mean, they don't want to hear that stuff. Nobody wants to talk about what happens when you die, but, We've had those talks, cremate me, put me here, carry me around, throw some dirt here, sprinkle me over this and that. But <laughs> honestly, it's, it's for the living and you're helping them out. Well, and I think that was actually where I did remember my point. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> no, but um, was that, you know, I had told my friend, I said, I wrote these letters, one for Luke, one for Claudia, one for Tom before my surgery. I was really terrified. I had complications before. Um, so you know, I, I was afraid. And one of the things for me to deal with that fear was to put it on paper to, to get that part out. And I actually wanted to surgery very calm, but, um, I had told my friend, I said, I'm going to give my kids that letter now. Like, you know, why wouldn't I tell them what I dream for them, what I hope for them, um, how much I love them and respect them mm. as human beings. Why wouldn't I do that now? Why do they have to wait for a letter when I'm dead? So mm. on the other side of surgery, it was, okay, here, you know, instead of reading the letter, um, we're going to talk about what I wrote. And yeah, I mean, it's an emotional thing to do, but it's part of how we, so many people feel better prepared and then that alleviates yeah. fear. That's it. If you're prepared for something, you feel better about it. Right. So if you're prepared for death and you know everything's in, a, in an order. A little better for it. It makes it a little speak. bit easier. And you can write those letters again later, five more, two years. You, you're going to change as people anyway. So, Yeah. One of the, one of the um, patterns that I've seen with people who have found peace with death is that they 
don't keep pushing it off and and they accept it surrender to it and newsflash we're all gonna die uh maybe maybe the pandemic is is brought that more to light uh more to conscious thought um but um a lot of us don't spend time thinking about it unless we're in a position in a job or something like that where that might be a reality um but to to actually process that and and i love those ideas of writing letters um communicating it out doing that preparation and living it um, and putting it behind you, you know, and doing it in iterations. Um, one of the things it kind of makes me laugh. I know this is a, a really um, poignant point that you make in the book, Tom, but um, given, <laughs> given all of uh, the, the difficulties that you've surmounted in your life, um, I, lo- <laughs> I love that it's putting in, juxtaposition to your relationship to Jen and how uh, of all the mountains that you've climbed, how this surpasses the other ones. There's a point on page 282 where you say, I was going to be fighting the biggest battle of my life and wondering if I was up to the task. I'd been through a lot of brutal selection processes in my military career with special forces in the unit. Yet I knew that neither of those was going to compare to the selection process in front of me if I wanted to preserve my marriage to Jen. Um, what a, what a, what a beautiful, um, idea. And I think the thing that I really take away from that is how powerful the feminine love, the feminine is. Um, can you speak into that, Tom, and, and what that's meant to you and how that compares to your battle experience? Yeah, we, you know what, she, she's instilled in me some of that feminine side. I and mean, here's where all the laughs come. Uh, the, the loving, empathetic portion that we could all use to balance us out individually versus I'm a warrior, I don't have love. Well, then that's, that's your only purpose. Snap you off and throw you away when we don't need you anymore, which is not what people want to feel about themselves, right? We want to be well-rounded. So I don't know why so many warriors talk about, I don't have emotions, I don't have need, I don't need this and that. I'm not soft and I don't hug and kiss. And it's like, you know, or tell my friends I love them. I do all the time now. Why? Because I do. I don't tell everybody that, right? I, I tell the ones I do that. But to not have that loving, touching, feeling side, right? Then we're not whole as a human. We've either shut it out because it's in all of us. We all want to feel connected and safe and secure. So therefore, we have those emotions, right? Because when we don't, what, after 48 hours, we start to break down. So time's right now we're actually separated, you know, people are separated from their friends, but they're back home now. And then there's some people that probably living alone in apartments that, you know, you need to check up on because after 48 hours, like I said, that, that need for connection starts to break us down as humans. But man, when I, when I started to realize what I was not having in my life, um, the love and the feelings and, and the emotions and everything had been turned off. When I realized that, I realized how much I was missing, right? How much good I was missing in the world. And I realized that everything I focused on was the negative in people, which is all I saw, which is all I thought people gave because I didn't look for the good and the happy and the positive. So I didn't see it. And I tell people it's that easy. If I'm looking, you know, if I'm picking up brass on the, on the, on the range, we shot 45 and nine mil. Nine mil is a little smaller. Sometimes it falls inside the 45 shell, right? But we're only picking up nine mil. That's all I see is nine mil. I blow everything off, you know? And so if I'm only looking for bad, it's, uh, 
That's all I find. That's all I find, and I'm guaranteed to find it. So I started looking for good and positive and happiness um, to the point, you know, my friends are like, what's wrong with Tom? What did you do to Tom, Jen? What, what are you, hanging around all your hippie friends? I go, why? Because I'm happy? That's wrong? It's, it's, it's confusing to people that knew me before and haven't seen me in 10 years or more, and, you know, we're still friends, or we call ourselves friends or acquaintances now, but and then they see me now. And people have their guard up because, you know, I'm, an, I'm a jerk. I'm an asshole, right? But, okay, I was because I was living in that get it done now or you'll die mode that, you know, this needs done and it needs done this way now. Dishes, marriage, making the bed, driving the car, relationships. <laughs> um, so realize that, wow, nobody's going to die. Let's have a little talk. Let's be nice about it and relaxed. Um, I go back and forth still. It's tough. Yeah, but your self-correction is pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> I correct myself in an argument. It's weird. It does. It's awesome. I'm I like, don't want I her to do recording. it, so I'll do it. I'm like, I have to start recording this. I'll have a full battle. Yep, should have said that. That was me, rude. I don't mean it. I was just hurt. I was trying to cover it up. But here's how I really feel. She's like, wow, you just had that whole thing right here. It but saved us a lot of time. I don't have to argue. It's just I'll watch it unfold entirely. And I'm like, okay. I'm it's <laughs> to be a high-level leader on top of the world in a unit that you go around the world and make things happen, um, to come home and be questioned by a 13-year-old girl, uh, to be, you know, <laughs> who's smarter than me probably, and, and, and a wife that looks at you like, I don't understand that, and you're like, well, I'll tell you why, and, and then try to be right all the time. And to, to, to loosen up and realize that I'm not right all the time. And I don't have to be. And it doesn't matter if I'm wrong. And I don't need to defend it and fight it out and be that guy. And so it's, it's kind of nice to let go, you know. That's and I see some of my friends win. on social media. What's that? That's the relationship win thing that's yeah, helped yeah. us so much. If I'm trying to win or she's trying to win, the relationship loses. So, you know, now we kind of both work on the relationship winning versus either of us winning something individually. Yeah, for sure. I see a lot of my friends on social media, different posts now as the years go by, breaking down, softer, funner, you know, more family-oriented. It's taken a long time. I see yeah. other ones, you know, still the same thing. Oh, uh, you know, political, arguing, pushback. Angry. The angry memes, you know. The, it's just... Judging. It's the hardest thing to break out of that, that shell you built for yourself, that mold that you've created. Also, and the it culture. That it becomes your identity. Your culture is your identity, and, and you're afraid to step away from it. It's what we get from everybody. It's what I experience. Because, I mean, I'll break it down to child terms. The other guys will laugh at me, right? If I'm not part of the gang, the other guys will laugh at me, and then I won't be part of the gang, and I'll feel left out. I went through that. That's a rudimentary way to explain it, but I think that's the easiest way to understand it is that you feel left out of the group if you go away from the group norm or the group uh, think even though you believe it's right. And that's what leaders do though. And I think every yeah, one of us are leaders. If we do what's legally, morally, and ethically right, we make decisions based on our facts and we take the human consideration into all of our, all of our uh, decisions. As long as we understand that, uh, you know, it's not life and death anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, there's a human condition to our answers now. So stepping out of that is difficult, but, you know what, if you're first on the dance floor, you're a leader, if you're second, then okay. You know, the leadership kind of drops off from there to the followers at some point. And there's nothing wrong with followers. You need followers. Right? You need followers. You need people, but 
even followers can be leaders in their own groups by making proper decisions and helping people when they know they need some help. Um, I love what you said there about um, instead of fighting to be right, you're fighting for the relationship. Um, that I think is a huge takeaway that our politicians could take that, that each individual uh, person listening to this, dealing with kids um, that might be a good place to sort of tie this up into a nice bow. Um, any other further thoughts, Jen? Um, no, and I love how you just brought that back around because literally my brain went, yeah, I do need to apply that with my kids during this time. <laughs> That's what I was saying too. If I have to be right, you know, like I have to, this is a great time for all of us to learn when to pick our battles, what battles are most important to pick and letting some things just go right now, you know, letting some things slide, um, really defining your priorities, what they are. Um, making sure you're sticking true to, um, you know, what's right to do. But also, as you said, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to try to win with my kids during this time so much. I think I'm going to let our relationship win. Although, um, like I said, having those routines right now is going to be pretty critical mm -hmm. for everyone, I think. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, the book is called All Secure. Um, Great read. It's one of the best reads I've I've read um, in the military space. And uh, again, thank you for writing this. Thank you, uh, Steve Jackson, again for co-writing it um, and uh, for sharing your the the hardest parts to share. Not the not the the wins and the successes, but the 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 ugly stuff too. And um, and then Jen, for you showing up and and helping. Um, helping us understand what life is meaning, you know, the meaning in life. Um, so you guys are awesome. I appreciate what you're doing. The, uh, can you just give us a quick 30 second thing on the foundation? So people are aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, you can visit us at allsecurefoundation.org um, to learn more about what we do, who we serve and how we do it. But essentially what we do is we help special operation warriors, their families, reconnect and rebuild the relationships post-service or post-deployment. So we have different programs that support our special operation warriors and their families um, in order to heal on the home front. Fantastic. Um, I just thought one last final thought here is this is a great book to read right now. If, if you're at home and you're looking for uh, something to, to kill a little time, um, this book puts so many different things into perspective. It, um, I think one of the biggest takeaways too is that we got this. This is, we're built for this. And um, there is uh, the most challenging things are the times that we grow the most. And, and I, this to me is a huge testament to that on many different levels. So again, Tom and Jen, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Peter. Thank Appreciate you. It. it was awesome seeing you again. You too.